average. I've spent my life running from that word. I started my life as an average guy with average faults and average capabilities. But I soon learned that this world presents greater than average problems. It wasn't long before those problems pressured me to become someone else, to become Superman. I convinced myself I had to be bulletproof. I had to be bigger than any problem. I had to be superhuman. Frankly, I'm tired of being Superman. Maybe Clark wasn't so bad after all. It's time for reality to meet the real me. It's time to say goodbye to Superman. Well, most of you New Springers are too young to remember a political character, but maybe you'll still remember the name. Let me say a name for you and see what image it conjures up. Richard Nixon. If you were around, if you're my age, a little younger, a little older, you remember that Richard Nixon was the American president, the only American president to resign in disgrace. There have been a lot of presidential scandals through the years, but Watergate was a scandal that was so large that it actually brought down a sitting president of the United States. And when, when Nixon resigned, my first week of college, I remember that. I was driving to campus and, and I, heard, I was listening to the news. When he resigned, he was the most hated man in America. And so maybe those of you who come up afterwards, you sort of think about Nixon and instantly he conjures up the image of a pariah, the most hated man in America. But you know what you might not know about Nixon was um, he had several things going for him. He probably was one of the smartest men we ever had in the White House. He was a smart guy. And even though I wouldn't agree with a lot of his politics, Nixon, if you just look at achievements, he was one of the most effective presidents. A lot of things that we take for granted today came up during the Nixon administration, especially opening up China. Um, he served eight years as a fairly popular vice president under Dwight Eisenhower. And here's the one that's a real shocker. Less than two years before he resigned in disgrace, after the Watergate break-in happened, he won the largest landslide in American presidential political history. In 1972, with Watergate having already occurred, the break-in already being reported, Nixon took 49 out of 50 states. That's something that wouldn't be repeated again until 1984. And he won the still standing largest popular vote majority. Think about this. Two years before he resigned in disgrace, he got the greatest popular vote majority in American history. How'd that happen? How'd he go from being so, I guess you could say popular, to being so hated in such a short period of time? Well, the answer to that question is locked up in, in Nixon the man. Now, if you like to study history like I do, you know that Nixon kept an enemies list. He had a short version and a long version. And he had a version with about 20 names of people that he really hated. Then he had this long list of enemies that came from every strata. It's sort of interesting when you look at some of the people who run Nixon's enemies list. Actor Paul Newman. Some of y'all are old enough to remember Paul Newman in the movies. The rest of you know him as the salad dressing guy. But, I mean, <laughs> Paul Newman. Bill Cosby. How could Bill Cosby be anybody's enemy? America's dad. Joe Namath, quarterback for the Jets. Joe Willie. How could he be anybody's enemy? And yet Nixon had these on his enemies list. 
Well, there's no doubt about it. Nixon, one of his enemies, brought him down. But you know, the interesting thing about it was New Spring. It wasn't anybody on his short list or his long list. The enemy that brought Richard Nixon down was Richard Nixon. And that's how it is to some degree with you and me. I mean, all of us have people in our lives who don't like us. And there may be even somebody in your life that would like to take you down. But the truth of the matter is the only person who really has the power to bring you down is the person you look at in the mirror. Because like Nixon, if we're not careful, we will become our own worst enemy. A lot of people are their own worst enemies. And a lot of people are in the process of bringing themselves down. And so as I shared with you before in the introduction to this talk, I want us to do something today. I want us to look at a very Nixonian character in the Bible. And I'll tell you what's really interesting about him. He, he blew his life up. And the, the interesting aspect of this is how much ink God devotes to this guy. God gives us about 31, 32 chapters of the Bible to give us the backstory or the story of this man who blew his life up. And I don't think things happen for accidents. I think that God, or at least God's word, I think God's word is intentional. And the reason why God gives this person so much ink is he wants us to understand the evolution of what happens when a person blows his life up and how a person becomes his own worst enemy. And here's one of the most important things I'm going to say today. It's very predictable. There are four steps that Saul takes to blow his life up, and these are the same things that people do today to become their own worst enemy. There are four, and they are sequential and so what I'm going to do today, I'm going to ask your permission because we're going to look at a lot of scripture and I'm going to ask you to pay attention to what's happening along the way because from time to time I'm going to come back later and sort of point something out that you will have seen develop in Saul's life. Things that you're going to pick up from the things he says and the things he does. Well, let me give you the backstory of King Saul. The Israelites during the period of the judges did not have a king. God had said to Israel, I will be your king. And he brought up men and women who would be leaders in Israel that would sort of be conduits of God's plan. People like Gideon and Deborah and Jephthah. These judges were, were God's representatives to Israel, but in effect, God said, you don't need a king, I'll be your king. It's a really great setup because God would deliver them from their enemies and bless them. But the day came when the Israelites said, we don't like this setup anymore. I think what happened was they saw other nations and on their days of high civic visibility, their kings, the other nation's kings would strut out on their horses and everybody would throw garlands and wreaths and they would have a big celebration. And, and the Jews sort of felt backward about that because they didn't have a king. And I'm sure people from other nations said, where's your king? And they said, well, well God is our king. Oh, does he ever come to parades? No. Well, God is your king. And we have 12,000 gods. Which one of your gods is king? Well, we only have one God. Well, what's his name? We can't say his name. So you sort of see... I mean, it wasn't a smart thing, but you sort of see how the, how the is, people of Israel could get backed into this. And so they said to Samuel, who was God's particular judge at that time, we want to be like other nations. We want to look like them. We want a king. And it broke Samuel's heart. And he told God about it. And God said, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Sometimes one of the worst things that can happen is for God to give us what we want when we want the wrong thing. And God said to Israel, you want to look like other nations? I'll give you what you want. And God gave them Saul. And we meet him in chapter 9, verse 2. The Bible says Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anybody else in the land. Israel said, we want to look like other nations. We want to have a king. So God sent them somebody who looked like a king. The only problem with Saul was it was all exterior. 
I mean, Saul looked like Brad Pitt, but he was Ben Stiller on the inside, <laughs> if that helps. I mean, <laughs> he looks great. He's tall, he's taller than anybody else, he's very handsome. And yet, when we first meet Saul, and I love reading this in the King James because it conjures up all kinds of images for me. Saul is chasing his donkey. Uh, his dad lost his donkey, and so his dad said to Saul, I think I found a job that fits you. I want you to go look for the lost donkeys. He is a donkey chaser. <laughs> he looks very good, but he's a donkey chaser. And so you can sort of imagine the surprise when God said, I want him to be king, but he looked good. He was a donkey chaser. And there were people in Israel that just said, oh, we don't want this guy you know, can, and there were people that said, can this guy save us? And they dissed him. They didn't want him to be king. But I want to stop right now and ask you a question. Because see, at this moment, Saul hadn't done anything wrong. It's not his fault he was born good looking. It's not his fault that he made a good first impression and couldn't follow it up. And some of, I, that's never been my problem. I've never been, I've never looked better than I could perform. But some of you may have, you, life may have put you there. You're, you're fantastic looking. And people, when they first meet you, they assume that you're capable of doing all kinds of things because you make a first impression and it kind of chews at you. There's nothing wrong with that. Let me ask you a question, though. What do you do when you make a better first impression than you perform? What happens when you come across better than you can produce? Because at that moment, there's sort of a why in the road, and that's going to take us to what we're talking about today because our series is called Say Goodbye to Superman. Jonathan talked to you last week about what happens when you almost can be Superman or almost can be Superwoman. I want to talk to you today about when you feel compelled to play the part of Superman or Superwoman. See, here's the thing. When you come across better than you can actually produce, at that moment, you have a choice to make. You can say, okay, I'm going to embrace my strengths and work on my weakness. Let me start over again. Let me throw an adverb in there. You can embrace your strengths honestly and choose to work on your weaknesses. Or you can say, I've got to keep up the image. I make a good impression. People think I'm something I'm not. So I'm going to have to at least pretend I'm going to play the part of what people think I am. If you make that awful choice, what will happen is you will spend the rest of your life pouring your life's resources into the facade. And that's what happened with Saul. And it was especially sad because God did something for Saul that was really special. Since God asked him to be king... God knew that his inside didn't match his outside. God gave him the capacity for his inside to match his outside. Now, guys, if I knew how to preach, I would tell you something. I'm going to take a crack at it anyway. Saul lived in the Old Testament. There was something very different about the Old Testament era from the era that you and I live in. And, and the reason why I make this point and I take this time today is what God did for Saul, which was very unusual in the Old Testament, he offers to every one of us today. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament came down upon people at various points for various reasons. And that's what's going to happen to Saul. We'll read it in just a moment. But the Bible tells us in our era that anyone who receives Christ also receives God's Holy Spirit. So the special cool deal that God's about to do for Saul, he offers to each one of us. But let's read it because I want to show you something really important here. Samuel tells Saul... Whenever you're, he's talking about when he's anointed king. At the time, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will be changed into a different person. And then First uh, Samuel 10, verse 9, as Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart. 
In effect, what happened was the Spirit of God came upon Saul, giving him, and this is the operative word here, giving him the capacity to be on the inside what he looked like on the outside. But I want to go back to that word. God didn't make him a robot where he was suddenly able to be king. God gave him the capacity to grow into being the kind of leader that he looked like. See, here's the thing. When God's spirit moved into you and me, he doesn't make us a perfect Christ follower. It gives us the capacity to grow into someone who is like Christ. Many of us who follow Jesus Christ, we received the Holy Spirit the moment we got saved, but we've never explored that capacity. When you read the story of Saul, and I hope you do because I, don't have, I just have just a few moments to touch the, sort of touch the exterior of it. I hope, you, I hope you get into 1 Samuel when you go home and just break this all apart and look at it. The sad part of Saul who blows up his life is he never embraced what God did in his life. In his mind, God did these extraordinary things, chosen to be king, gave him the internal capacity to grow into being a successful king. And yet in Saul's mind, he was always a donkey chaser playing the part of a king. And if you read 1 Samuel, as I hope you will when you go home, you're gonna, it's, it's almost like you're going to hear God saying over and over, if this guy will just trust me, I will make him a success. And you hear Saul saying, this is really an important line, you hear Saul saying, if they ever find out who I am, they won't let me be king. Could we pull over to the side of the road and talk for just a moment? Some of us have that. That is the mantra of insecurity. If they ever find out who I really am, I won't get married. If they ever find out who I really am, I, I can't hang with these friends. If they ever find out who I really am, they won't want me to do this job. And that's what Saul is going to say for the rest of his life. Guys, I hate it when ministers ask me to say something or do something in a, in a sermon. So I, I wouldn't do that to you. But I am going to ask you to do something mentally right now. Let's, let's stop and do an exercise. In your mind, say your name. I'll use me, for example. Mark Hoover, that's who I am. Oh, that's my name. Let me ask you a question. When you say your name, is that a real character? Is it a real person? Or is it a fictitious character? In other words, am I being Mark Hoover? Or am I playing Mark? Am I really living out my life? Or is this just a role that I play? I think one of the saddest things in life is there are people who live to be 70, 80, 90 years old, and they never get to meet themselves. They never get to know who they really are because it's all a, it's all a role. See, God, God said to Saul, I want you to be king to do a job. What Saul heard was, I want you to play the part of a king. You're a donkey chaser. So you got to look like a king. you got to play the part of a king. Well, with time ebbing away, I, I want to take just a few moments to show you that it started well, and I want you to get an idea of what could have been. This is the early days of Saul's kingdom. A lot of people still don't recognize him as king. He hadn't done anything kingly. And the Israelites are under attack, and they're under attack by, especially a particular area of Israel, is under attack by a very brutal man named Nahash. And he is laying siege to this area. And the people of Israel are so scared, they're asking, what do we have to do for terms of peace? What do we have to do for, to sue for peace? And Nahash the Ammonite said, here are my terms for peace. And I know some of you are getting ready for lunch, and I'm not trying to be grotesque. It's just what he said. He said, I want all the men to gouge their right eyes out. And when I was 
grotesque and brutal and inhumane and awful to ask for such a thing, but there was a military purpose for doing it. A lot of the wars were fought between archers, and a person who was shooting a bow and arrow would try to get as much of his head behind something solid and then use his right eye to sight the arrow. And so when he asked him to gouge out their right eyes, he was asking for them basically to disarm. Now, such a statement should have inflamed the passions of the men who lived in this era who would say, how dare you ask for such a thing? But the Israelites were in such a wimpish state at this moment, at least these particular ones, that they said, give us seven days and we'll think it over. And when Saul heard about that, he was so upset, right or wrong, he took a sword and went to Gilead and he hacked up a couple of oxen in everybody's presence and he said, well, let me read it to you. He said, this is what will happen to the oxen of anyone who refuses to follow. And the whole reason I've told you this story is I want you to see this expression, Saul and Samuel. See, Samuel was God's representative. And at this moment, Saul is operating like he's supposed to operate. He's basically saying, look, guys, I'm just following God here, and everybody who's here needs to follow me as I follow God. Wow. He, he excited the people. The people came out. They routed, routed the Ammonites. And then look at this. In 1 Samuel 11, this is when the battle is over. The people exclaimed to Samuel, now where are those men who said, why should Saul rule over us? Bring them here and we will kill them. So now Saul has an opportunity to have all of his detractors whacked. I love this. But Saul replied, no one will be executed today, for the Lord has rescued Israel. I mean, you know, I love this Saul. This is who he could have been. He said, it isn't about me. God did this. So we're not going to kill anybody today. And look at the response of the people. In solemn ceremony before the Lord, they made Saul king. And Saul and all the Israelites were filled with joy. If the period was there, and that was the rest of the story, he'd have been a glowing success. Yep, started out a donkey chaser, but he was a great king. Alas, we just get a little glimpse of what could have been. Because Saul now is going to start his descent into destruction. And we're going to learn the first step of self-destruction. I asked you a few moments ago, are you a real person or are you just playing you? There's a very big difference between real people who are truly living their lives and people who are on the stage playing out the role of their lives. See, people who really are living out the, their lives, they live according to non-negotiables. You know, they may struggle with weaknesses. They may struggle with this and that. But there are certain things that are just non-negotiable. Now, for me, I'm a Christ follower. Those are things that God sets. But, I mean, you might not even be a religious person here. And if you really are being yourself, you have non-negotiables. Maybe you're here today and you're a United States Marine. If you're a United States Marine, you got some non-negotiables. You're not playing a part. You're being, you're being a Marine. No Marine left behind. You're being a United States Marine. So that's the difference between being someone and playing a role. On the other hand, if you're playing a role, then oh, you're playing to the crowd. And so mm, a lot of things that otherwise would be non-negotiable, they're negotiable because the crowd is watching you. Now, the reason I make this point today is we live in the era of, and let me give you a couple of terms, moral relativism and situation ethics. Moral relativism means, well, what might be right for you might not be right for me. 
your, your truth may not be my truth. Your right may not be my right. There, there is no standard of right and wrong. It's, there's sort of a moral relativism. Situation ethics tells us that, well, ordinarily it wouldn't be the right thing to do, but in this situation it's okay to do. See, what I'm trying to tell you is we've been brought up to be a whole generation of people that have already taken the first step to oblivion. Because the first step to destroying our lives is to compromise a non-negotiable. I want to show you this with Saul. It's another day. It's another battle. It's a bigger enemy. It's the Philistines this time. And Saul, his job, remember, is to be king. But before the battle starts, the people of Israel, they need to have a high, solemn sacrifice to basically invoke God's power and ask for his help. Now, Samuel, Saul's job is to be the political leader. Samuel's job is to be the spiritual leader. Under no circumstances should Saul have ever even thought about leading the sacrifice. That is not his role. That is him usurping something that he should never do. But Saul's got a problem. Sometime between the last battle and this battle, he's decided that he's an actor on the stage. And his problem is his troops, while they're waiting on Samuel to show up and do the sacrifice, his troops are walking away. He's not looking very kingly. Let's read. This is in 1 Samuel 13, verse 7. Meanwhile, Saul stayed at Gilgal, and his men were trembling with fear. Saul waited there seven days for Samuel, and Samuel instructed him earlier. But Samuel stood in come. Saul realized that his troops were rapidly slipping away. So he demanded, bring me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Saul sacrificed the burnt offering himself. Was that a big thing? Not if you don't consider blasphemy a big thing. It was a huge thing. Just as Saul was finishing with the burnt offering, Samuel arrived. Saul went out to meet and welcome him. But Samuel said, what is this you've done? Saul replied, I saw my men scattering from me, and you didn't arrive when you said you would. It's not my fault. And the Philistines are at Michmash ready for battle. So I said, the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. Now, doesn't that sound very spiritual? The only thing is for Saul to operate, to do the sacrifice was the same thing as flipping God off with both hands. Clearly, Saul is not concerned about asking for God's help. He is concerned about the image he wants his troops to have some sort of pep rally before they go into battle, and he is willing to leverage the glory of God in order to look good before his troops. But he's telling Samuel, I just wanted to ask God for his help. Well, <clears throat> Samuel is not, he's not confused. In verse 13, he says, how foolish. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. Had you kept it, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Guys, I've, I've been pastoring for a lot of years. And I've worked with thousands of people. And I've heard their stories. I would ask you to trust me on this. But I'm guessing you can, you can go through your own mind. The people you've known. And you can determine that this is true. You show me anybody who's blown up their life. And I promise you. You can always trace it back to it starting when somebody compromised a non-negotiable. And see, this is the thing. If you're being who you are, you won't worry about compromising a non-negotiable because you're being something. You're being a person. You will make your decisions based on the non-negotiables of your life. But if you're playing a part, 
then you'll just say, well, you know, maybe I always thought this was a sexual non-negotiable, but maybe in order to be accepted, I can compromise this sexual non-negotiable. I always thought this was an ethical non-negotiable, but I want to be accepted. I want to be liked. And so consequently, I'll cross this line and I'll compromise the non-negotiable. Well, as I said, these things are predictable and one of them leads to another. They're sequential. Because when you and I compromise non-negotiables, see, here's the thing. Non-negotiables always come from a higher source. Well, when you decide, and when I decide that we can compromise non-negotiables, we, we lose that sense of mooring. We lose that sense of direction. So number two, we do the only thing we can do. We start writing our own script. See, if I'm not going to follow God's script, I'm going to write my own script. I'm going to make it up as I go along. And clearly Saul slips into this second tragic, second tragic mistake. Um, he started making it up. Uh, tech people, I'm going to skip down to 1 Samuel 15. Real quick backstory. God had said to Saul, I want you to wipe out an entire people group because they had done abominable things. And Saul failed to do this, and this people group wound up causing a lot more trouble. But in any event, God said, I want you just to wipe out everything. But Saul decided he was, going, he was going to do about half of it because he's writing the script now. He's already compromised God's non-negotiables. So he's deciding what he is going to do and what he isn't going to do. He spared the king's life because, you see, sometimes when kings got victories over other kings, they brought the other king back to trash talk him, to taunt him. It was the king's way of saying, look, look how great I am. Brought the other king here. We'll make him grovel. So... Saul spared the king, and then on top of that, he brought back, well, let's read. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and the goats and the cattle, the fat calves, the lambs, everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless or of poor quality. This is verse 10 of chapter 15. And the Lord said to Samuel, I'm sorry I ever made Saul king, for he's not been loyal to me, and he's refused to obey my command. Samuel was so deeply moved when he heard this that he cried to the Lord all night. But now Samuel's job is to go confront Saul. Let's read it. We're going to learn a lot here. When Samuel finally found him, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. And Samuel asked him, well, then what's the bleeding of sheep and the goats and the lowing of cattle I hear, Samuel demanded. Well, it's true that the army spared the best of the sea. It's not me. I'm king, but it's not my fault. It's my army. It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle, Saul admitted, but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. They've destroyed everything else. Let me ask you a question. You ever catch somebody in something, and they know you know what they did, and they still stand there and lie to your face? You probably feel like saying what Samuel said. The Hebrew basically says, shut up here. But let me just read it to you. In the text. So Samuel said to Saul, Stop. Stop. Listen to what the Lord told me last night. What did he tell you? Saul asked. And Samuel told him, Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king of Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission. Remember, we said early on, Saul's disconnect was he thought God wanted him to play the part of king, and God sent him out to do a job. And that's what Samuel was basically reiterating. He's saying, God sent you to do a job. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. Uh, yeah, I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everyone else. 
And then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, goats, and cattle. It's not my fault. It's their fault. And, and, and we did it to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord? Your burnt offerings and sacrifices are your obedience to his voice. Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice. Now, guys, I'm going to tell you, I know a lot of you drive a long way to New Spring. However far you had to drive, what I'm about to share with you next is worth it for you and me to be here today. Like I say, we live in a whole generation of situational ethics and moral, moral relativism in which it's very easy to step over the line of non-negotiables and say, I know God said, but, but I'm going to write my own script. We need to hear very clearly. Mark needs to hear very clearly what God is saying. When God says obedience is better than sacrifice, God's telling us something very important. When I think about 21st century American Christianity, here's kind of what I see. I see American Christians who claim to follow Christ, but they're compromising all kinds of sexual non-negotiables. They're compromising all kinds of financial non-negotiables. They're compromising all kinds of truth non-negotiables and relationship non-negotiables. We're stepping across the line and we're writing our own script, but somehow we managed to write God into our script. And we feel good because we've written God into our script. Well, I go to church and I sing worship songs. And I'll listen to Christian music on the radio. And I go to a, a group. And I talk about God with all my friends. See, I'm doing what I want to do. But it's okay because I've written God into my script. See, here's the thing. I'm not being anybody. I'm just playing the part of a Christian. But it's okay. It's cool because I've written God into my script. See, God, God fits in right here. He, he's right here in Act 2 and Scene 3. And he shows up again in Act 3 and Scene 1. When God says for Samuel to talk to Saul and to tell him to obey is better than a sacrifice, here's what God is saying to Mark and to everyone here. I want you to do what I say. I don't want to be written into your script. God is saying, I'm not fooled when you're just writing me into your script. Well, the third thing that happens You've kind of seen it already. It's sort of happening quietly while number one and number two are going on. Because when we compromise non-negotiables and we start writing our own script, we're not clear anymore on what's right and what's wrong. We're not, we've lost all sense of reality. We don't know what's true and what's not true. That's true. That's why that this age of moral relativism and situation ethics, that's why so many people are in a haze today. They don't know what's right and wrong. And, and people have, so many times people who are playing a part, they have been so dishonest, they can lie and probably pass a polygraph test. And so it is with Saul. And you've seen this already. Notice that three things happen every time Saul's confronted. And by the way, being confronted is a great opportunity for us to take off the grease paint and become a real person. But Saul does three things every time. Number one, he lies. He will stand there and look at Samuel when Samuel knows he's disobeyed God. And Saul will say, he saw it. Saul will say, well, of course I did what God asked me to do. He lies. And then when he can't lie anymore, he gives excuses. Well, it's not my fault. It's the soldier's fault. It's the people's fault. I was under pressure. And then finally, when he really doesn't have any choice, he will apologize. But it's for image sake. Listen, you watch this happen in our culture today. Somebody will do something wrong. They'll apologize. And the talking heads will say, well, was that an adequate apology? 
See, that's what a culture talks like when people aren't being real anymore. Everybody's just playing a role. Did he deliver that line well? Look at how bad it is with Saul. This is after the debacle that we just read about, and, and Samuel is just he's weeping, and he's wanting to just get away from Saul. And, and, and Saul admitted to Samuel, Yes, I've sinned. I've disobeyed your instruction of the Lord's command. I was afraid of the people, and I did what they demanded. But now please forgive my sin and come back with me that I may worship the Lord. Sounds good, right? I did wrong. Forgive me, please. Come back. I want to go worship God. And Samuel replied, I will not go back with you since you rejected the Lord's command. He's rejected you. And then Saul pleaded again. Look at this new spring. Saul said, I know of sin, but at least honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel by coming back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Saul is saying to Samuel, please, would you just make me look good? I got four minutes to give you something that the Bible takes about 20 chapters to cover. So I'm going to ask you to read it. There's a fourth thing that I think is the ultimate trapdoor. When you compromise non-negotiables, then you have to start writing your own script. And when you start writing your own script, you lose your moorings and you don't know what's true and what's false anymore. And when you don't want to know what's true and what's false anymore, there's a catastrophe lurking right before you. Let me set it up this way. Somebody said, no man's an island. That's not in the Bible, but it's a good statement. No woman is an island. Now, here's the thing. Even though you're a God follower and God's Holy Spirit lives inside of you, God has made us, listen, he has made us so we need each other, right? There is no woman here who is powerful enough by herself to achieve everything she needs to be to fulfill her destiny. There is no man here who has everything he needs to fulfill his destiny. You gotta have people. God in his love and his grace is gonna send you people who love you, who find favor in you, who will help you, right? And those of us who are, who are being ourselves, if you could, if, if when you heard your name tonight, you said, or today, you said, I'm not playing a role, I'm being that person, then you would be the first person to put your hand up and say, Mark, you're right. I'm so thankful for the people that God has sent into my life to help me, to speak truth into my life, to speak encouragement, right? But here's the problem. When you compromise non-negotiables, you start writing your own script, and you don't know the difference between right and wrong, you are not able to recognize the difference between the people who come into your life to help you and the people who come into your life who are going to blow your life up because you've lost truth. Look, if you're Saul, and you're 45 years old, and you're screwing up everything, and things are not going well, what could be more delicious than just having a young man show up who loves you, who is loyal to you, who is so strong and powerful that he can go out and win victories and lead others to help your cause. I'm telling you, if you're Saul, what you need is you need some raw bone kid to come from a shepherd's fold. I mean, think about this. When David showed up, Saul and the rest of Saul's men, they were cowering behind, you know, in the caves, in the tents, because this nine-foot-tall Philistine came out and taunted them, trash-talked them. And along comes this teenage boy with his bag of rocks and his slingshot. And he's saying, why are you letting this guy get by with this? And David goes down and goes mano mano with a nine-foot-tall giant, sinks a rock in his head and cuts the top of it off. And he comes back and he, Saul basically eventually hires him to be his top general. And he goes out and wins war after war after war after war. What could be 
more delicious if you're Saul than having a young leader like David show up and make you look good. And yet you know the rest of the story. Saul becomes jealous of David. And time after time, in fact, their last years of Saul's life are spent in trying to hunt down and murder the man that God sent to help them. When we compromise non-negotiables, we start writing our own script, and we can't tell the difference between truth and fiction. The problem is, if we're not careful, not knowing what the difference between truth and fiction, we will push away the very people God sends to help us, and we will invite in the people who don't care about us, who will destroy our lives. And that's what happened with Saul. My time is up. I don't want that to be our story. If, you, if you're here today and a little, bit, a little bit of this is going on, maybe you find a little bit of yourself at stage one. Maybe sexually you're stepping across the line and you're compromising a non-negotiable because you want the approval of somebody. Or maybe you find yourself already in number two and you're saying, Mark, I've lost my moorings and I'm writing my own script. Hey, there's still time. Go home, take the grease paint off. Take the mask off. Decide who you are. Decide that there are some non-negotiables in your life. Ask yourself if, if God is king in your life. I, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a thinker about many times how things could have been. Wouldn't it have been great if Saul had said something like this to his people? He could have said, you know, guys, I don't know how I got this job. I was just out chasing donkeys. And God made me king. And I don't know how I got this job, but he gave me the job, so he must know what he's doing. And he asked me to do the job, so you know what? I'm going to do the best I can. And why don't you come help me? Because if you come help me, there's no telling what God might do with us. And I'm guessing, you know, as God begins to bless us, he's going to raise up other leaders, maybe some kid out in a sheepfold somewhere who's going to come and help us, and we're going to go do great things together for God. And you know what? If I fail, well, I just started out donkey chaser anyway. And if I succeed, it's God in me. But I'm going to be what God has asked me to be. I'm not going to play a part. I promise you, it would have been a very different thing. It's too late for Saul, but it's not too late for you and me. Thanks for being here today. Go out and be you. Say goodbye to Superman. Give me your eyes for just one second Give me your eyes so I can see everything